0: Welcome to the Vertiguise show. I am Eric. I'm Sean. And we are the Vertiguise, the aforementioned Vertiguise. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We are here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three. Preacher, Hellblazer, Sandman. That's right, we're doing Sandman today now, where last we left our hero. He had a girlfriend. Yeah, that's pretty much all you need to know at this point in the story, actually. He had a girlfriend. Wait, there's a little note here about what you need to know. It says what you need to know. It says it right here. It says, There are seven beings that aren't gods, who existed before humanity dreamed of gods and will exist after the last god is dead. They are called the Endless. They are embodiments of, in order of age, destiny, death, dream, destruction, desire, despair, and delirium. Approximately 300 years ago, destruction abandoned his realm. And it says that's all you need. So, yeah, something, something. Restore peace to the galaxy. Yeah. So thank you very much, Neil Gaiman. Or I'm gonna give him credit for writing that intro, even though I really have no idea. Karen Berger, maybe. Could be Karen Berger, and she does not get enough credit on this show for being one of the foundational engines, no, of the early Vertigo comics. What was the name of that guy? He wrote the introduction to A Game of You. Samuel R. Delaney. Very famous. Public intellectual Samuel R. Delaney might have been him. <laughs> There's an end note to this volume by Peter Straub, but we're not going to talk about it. Unlike the Samuel R. Delaney end note, it is at the end. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Sandman number 41. Various titles were available, so I chose my favorite one, Journal of the Plague Year, written by Neil Gaiman with pencils by Jill Thompson, inks by Vince Locke, and colors by Daniel Vazo. Now, Jill Thompson is best known for her Scary Godmother series of children's books, but she has plenty of comics work under her belt, too. We last saw her in Sandman number 40, The Parliament of Rooks. She's got clean lines, expressive characters. She's a real asset to this story arc. I thought you were going to say she's a real asshole. No, <laughs> that would be unprovoked. I know it would be, but phonetically it sounded like where you were going. So the cover here is like lots of little covers, sort of like how there's lots of little titles. That's right, there's a bunch of little squares containing images, and each one has a title. So these titles are all kind of associated with an object. There's flowers under broken glass, a clawed hand, a painting of a woman, a butterfly resting on a bust, a handwritten book chopped through with nails. That's the Journal of the Plague gear. Ah, well, that's the best one. I guess you shouldn't open it. On account of the plague. I don't think the plague can cling to pages forever. Probably not. Okay, so we open... On a sheer cliff, and there's an old man climbing it. And we get some narration right here at the start. I love this. It is, of course, a miracle. Andros can never get over the honor daily done to him and his family, their privilege and their burden, as custodians, guards, and priests, as witnesses to the miracle. So we're following this old man, Andros. He's the leader of the priests on this island, which may look a bit familiar to you. Yeah, we are told that he is now the oldest one, the head of the family. Every morning, he has to climb the concealed stone steps set into the rock face of this island. He pauses at the top to catch his breath. He's getting old. I think you could remove the word getting from that sentence. Well, that's the way that he phrases it in this sort of third-person omniscient narration. He plucks a flower from a nearby tree and lays it on the headstone of Lady Joanna Constantine, born 1760 died 1859. Be to her virtues, very kind. Be to her faults, a little blind. Every spring day for over 60 years he has picked a blossom from the cherry tree. Every spring day he has placed it on the lady's grave, as his father and his grandfather did before him. Now we meet Andros's son-in-law, Chris, who came to the island 20 years ago fleeing a war. Andros' family was expecting him when he arrived. Uh, Chris is standing here in the door of this ancient looking ruined temple with an m16 prepared for anything that's right and andros tells chris that he saw chris's son standing guard now guards should not be seen so the boy needs a beating yeah beat him and as you do tell him that when they stole our charge 200 years ago it was 30 years before he returned to us 30 years it will never happen again I just want to point out one more thing. It says that Chris was driven by dark dreams. Well, that's our first mention of dreams in this issue of Sandman. Good catch. Yep. So as Andros enters this temple, he is greeted by a voice. Good morning, Andros. And we meet his charge at last. You may recognize his charge as Orpheus. Though, if you were going by the introduction, that was not listed as something you needed to know. Orpheus is a severed head. It's kind of a long story. Yes, a long story that we covered in our Song of Orpheus special edition episode. And as Andros walks in here, Orpheus reminds him about the Blossom. She was a remarkable woman. All women are remarkable. Andros carries Orpheus to the east window so he can see the sunrise, and as he watches, Orpheus begins to sing, and Andros feels young again. I don't remember that being the effect of Orpheus' song the last time around. I think he's got songs for all kinds of occasions. Oh, so he's like, Link. (laughs) I did not expect that reference from you. He's got songs that do various things. Yes. Some of them make it rain. Some of them speed up windmills. Some of them summon a horse. He doesn't use the horse one often. It's hard for the horse to climb those steps. (laughs) And Andros watches the house on the next island over, thinking that the tourists over there don't know what they're seeing at this temple nobody comes here, they'd have a hard time making it up the hill, and then they run into the guardians. Yeah, and if they're watching, all they see, hopefully, is just an old temple. And hopefully they never notice that it's not totally abandoned. That's why guards shouldn't be seen. Yeah, although you would think that all you'd need is a reasonably good pair of binoculars to tell that it's occupied by people. And with a pretty powerful telescope, you could probably tell that there's a severed head in there. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Especially if people are routinely, like, carrying it over to the windowsill and setting it down. But the family has made plans for everything. Chris has drawn up plans that cover almost all eventualities, up to and including a helicopter assault on the temple. Thirty years. It shall not happen again. Now something else happens here, which is that Orpheus mistakenly refers to Andros as Crustos, which is to say his father, or rather his grandfather... The guardians have become somewhat interchangeable to Orpheus over the years? Hmm. Apparently. Andros carries Orpheus into the garden and narrates, It is going to be a beautiful day. And from there we cut to a somewhat less beautiful vista, a level of rain and general dismalness that can only be London. Yeah, where there is a pedestrian with an umbrella stopping to... Hand some money to an old homeless man who is huddled in a doorway. Actually, this is an old homeless woman, and it's one that we should recognize. This is Mad Hetty. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, who we encountered about two hundred years ago in the Men of Good Fortune story. We also saw Mad Hetty in Hellblazer, didn't we? Yes, and she was in Gotham. She really gets around. Right. Sharing this doorway with Mad Hetty is we are told a young homeless person. It's a shame, opines Mad Hetty, when it's the kids. I figure us old folks, well, we've had a good innings. But kids... Yeah, she goes on to explain that she had a son once, but he was lost in what was called a industrial accident. Called by who? She's kind of implying here that... Yeah, well, she says outright that she doesn't believe it was really an accident. Oh, and before we move on, I I like here that she's uh, begging for another 50p to put petrol in me Rolls Royce. Oh yeah, that's a good line. She has another line here that I want to mention. 30p and a bit of a natter. And I don't know, sometimes I think a kind word's better than the rhino. Rhino is British slang for cash money. Alright, makes sense. Do you think that she's deliberately written here with a pretty old-fashioned slang? Well, maybe somewhat. If she was trying to be old-fashioned, as in, like, you know, 1800s old-fashioned, she probably wouldn't say, Petrol and me Rolls-Royce. Mm, that's a good point. So she advises this young person hiding in the alcove with her to shield herself from the rain, and then we get our first look at the face of the young homeless person. It's Delirium! Now, Delirium is, as we mentioned a moment ago, one of the Endless, Morpheus's sister. The youngest of the Endless. Yes, and generally representative of confusion and madness. Yeah, she's the youngest of the Endless, but she's the only one who has changed. As we will learn more about here. Anyway, Mad Hetty advises that she goes back to her parents. You know, suck it up and go back home. But Delirium says that she has no parents. Not that she's lost her parents, but that she has no parents. Right, she clarifies that she didn't lose them, but she did lose a brother. I like this line. I feel like, I don't know, someplace nobody ever goes anymore. I don't know. So, as Delirium gets up and saunters away, another passerby hands Heady some change, and Delirium starts to mutter on about change. That was always kind of the problem, kind of, um, some days I feel like Rita Marlowe in The Wayward Bus. You ever see that movie? Change, 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 change. When you say words a lot, they don't mean anything. Or maybe they don't mean anything anyway, and we just think they do. Now, okay, based on a novel by John Steinbeck, the 1957 film The Wayward Bus starred Jane Mansfield. Rita Marlowe was Mansfield's character on stage and screen in George Axelrod's play Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter? The character's a parody of Marilyn Monroe. So Delirium wanders off and manages to bluff her way into a leather party. Yeah, that's right. The bouncer here turns her away until she points out to him that she has an invitation and is dressed properly. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Go on in love. And what she finds is what I have written here is what the disco in Uncanny X-Men number 130 would have looked like if John Byrne had a bit more imagination. (laughs) Okay. They're listening to a song. It's Tear in Your Hand by Tori Amos from Little Earthquakes. Next, I will play another Tori Amos song. (laughs) Tori Amos is, of course, a good friend of Neil Gaiman and has been named as possible inspiration for the Delirium character. Oh, I didn't know that she was friends with Neil Gaiman. I knew that she toured with Al Stewart. Cool. Okay, so in the club, Delirium spots Death, and she goes up and says, in a kind of an innocent way, shall we go back to your place? You're a bit ahead of yourself, aren't you? Bit too grubby for me, but I don't know. Buy me a drink and we can talk about it. I'm Lisa. Who are you? this is not death. My notes say, not death, just Lisa. (laughs) So at that, Delirium kind of panics, staggering away from this woman, and she screams out loud into the club, I want my sister! There's two older women in corsets who step in to kind of take care Mm -hmm. of her, one rather grudgingly. But then someone arrives to help. Oh yeah? And who are you? Well, sometimes I'm her sister. It's Desire the sister brother of the endless. Yeah, now there's a thing here that is kind of incidental to the plot, but I don't wanna gloss over it, which is that somebody approaches Desire, because Desire is very desirable, and just for the crime of approaching, is it them? The pronoun that's used in the comic for Desire is it. Okay, I know that's probably not polite, but that's what the one the comic uses. It's the one that It prefers. Seemingly, yeah. Well, anyway, just for the crime of having approached It, Desire puts a really horrible curse on this person. No. You see that young lady in red over there? Go and talk to her. Have a passionate weekend during which both of you make love until you're sore and bleeding. Then, without knowing why, refuse to see her again. She'll phone up and hang around your house. and When you ask her to leave... She'll just cry and not say anything, look at you with hurt eyes and follow you around. Eventually, this will make you so angry you'll find yourself needing desperately to make her say something, to make her react, to hurt her, to get her eyes out of your mind. After that, it'll be just a matter of time. What an asshole! Yeah, that's pretty rough, but again, desire isn't really evil, it just acts according to its nature. It's desire, not fulfillment. It can make people want like crazy, but it can't make them satisfied or happy or right for each other. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know, maybe I shouldn't defend desire, but it does seem to me implicit in its nature. Desire is the shittiest one of the Endless, and that's saying something. And desire is also sort of the arch-villain of the series. Yeah, both of those things are true. Well, despair is pretty bad, I guess. But Despair doesn't seem to take the, uh, delight in her work. No, no, Despair does not take delight in anything. Right. So Desire picks up Delirium and they go back to Desire's place, which is a giant statue of itself. Right, the Threshold. Delirium is trying to explain here that she's finding it harder to hold on to things. Desire tells her to pull herself together and instead she dissolves into a swarm of butterflies. Yeah, I thought that was cool. And then they start talking about destruction. Yeah, well, Delirium reforms in Desire's gallery, in front of the empty frame where Destruction's sigil should be. If we haven't described this in a while, each of the Endless has a gallery. This is a room with six portraits, each carrying the symbol of one of the other Endless, and we've seen that one of them is always an empty frame, representing the prodigal destruction. Desire, do you know where he is? Not only do I not know, Littlest sister, but I don't care. Do you think it's in the big book? I mean, everything's in the big book. Maybe he'd show it to us. She's looking at Destiny's book here. If our prodigal brother wanted us to find him, I'm sure he'd let us know. Yes. Look, Del, he's not here, okay? He's not one of the family anymore. Just accept it. I want him back! At this point, Delirium starts laughing at the idea of Desire telling her not to want something. She asks to borrow Desire's gallery. Her own is in her realm, which she has apparently lost. And with a neutral expression and smoke pouring from its nostrils, its face filling this whole panel, Desire says, Sure. So we're definitely calling a bit of attention to Desire's hand in Delirium moving on from this point. Sister, I'm standing in my gallery, only I'm not because this is Desire's. But can I come and see you, please? Please, I'm holding your sigil... Your ring thingy, really I am. And so Delirium teleports to the realm of despair. Now this is something we haven't seen before and it's pretty cool. The Grey Realm. Despair's realm is behind a mirror, or more specifically every mirror. This is the opposite of the realm of delirium. Here, nothing moves, nothing changes. And we find Despair peering through one of the windows, or one of the mirrors, at a Nebraska pedo. Yeah, she's watching through a mirror as this guy realizes that he doesn't have the the strength of character to kill himself. He doesn't. Isn't it beautiful? It's okay, I suppose, if you're into that kind of thing. Uh, well, he's a pretty bad pedophile, so... Kind of deserves it. Deserves Despair? Deserves to kill himself? <laughs> deserves a shitty outcome, either way. Delirium goes off on a tangent here. She thinks that she ought to have a pet. Despair has got her rats, Death has goldfish... Dream's got Matthew the Raven, and Destiny has little flappy things. What are Destiny's little flappy things? I don't know that we've seen them. Oh, maybe they're bats. Yeah, maybe she just forgot the word bats. That's actually a thread that we haven't mentioned, but it's been going on throughout the issue. The Delirium is trying to remember the name of the stuff inside people's eyes. Oh, yeah, that's right. We never We never mentioned it before, but here it finally gets resolved because she asks Despair, and Despair says vitreous humor she had a dream once or was it a dream or just an experience that she had in her realm where it was raining but it was raining the vitreous humor from people's eyes Mm -hmm. in any case throughout the story arc one of the things that characterizes delirium is that she's often trying to remember words that she's forgotten right so she starts to leave but despair stops her is that all you wanted to know Not really. There's something else. You must promise you won't be mad if I tell you... I don't get mad. Okay, then you have to promise if I say something you don't like that you won't do that voice that sounds like people with wet and bubbly stuff in their lungs buried under the ground being crushed to death by giant worms talking. I promise. And at this point, she finally brings up destruction. Our brother. I think we should get in touch with him. Despair's not really interested. Why he might be hurt. He might need us. So? I miss him. So? Will you help me find him? Do you honestly think he wants to be found? I don't know, but I want to find him. I just thought you could maybe help me. Despair asks what Delirium will do if she says no, and Delirium says pretty much go ask the rest of the family for help. There's a a long panel of consideration, and then Despair refuses. No, I won't help you while pulling at her lip with the little hooked ring that is her sigil. So next, Delirium decides to ask Dream, even though, as she says, he's spookier than Despair, and she's always afraid he's laughing at her behind his face. She also has an insightful comment here. And you don't want to upset Desire, do you? Then Delirium says she's going back to her own home, which we didn't know that she had access to. Right, she said that she lost her realm, but she seems to have the ability to get back there now, and this is cool. As she disappears in this flash of light, and then the light refines itself into three blind hummingbirds hanging in the air like jewels of iridescent scarlet and cobalt. Then one by one they fade, all color leached from them, and fall lifeless into the mists to be eaten by the rats. Now, this brings us to a flashback. It's been 300 years since despair and destruction saw each other one on one, face to face. Right, 1665, The Black Plague. This is the section of the comic referred to as a Journal of the Plague Year, and that title belongs to a 1722 novel about these events by Daniel Defoe. Right, there's a quote from that novel here. Let me observe here, said Defoe, writing somewhat after the event, that when I say people abandon themselves to despair, I do not mean to religious despair or to a despair of their eternal state, but I mean a despair of their being able to escape the infection, or to outlive the plague, the people were brought into a condition to despair of life." When Despair read that through a mirror, she nodded with the satisfaction of one who had performed her duty with diligence and care. Despair never feels happy, that's antithetical to what she is, but she does feel the satisfaction of a job well done. So she walks the streets which are basically abandoned. People killed the cats and rats, but they couldn't kill each other, so they just locked anyone with a sign of sickness in their house. The door was then sealed and a watchman placed outside until all therein had been untouched by the disease for 40 days, or were dead. So if people think you're sick, you get locked in your house, and then you die either way. Destruction appears. Well met, sister. Long it is since I saw you away from your domain. Destruction talks about how he is hardly ever in his realm. As a matter of fact, he's needed in the world almost all the time now. He asks if she's happy, but again, she's never pleased or displeased. When the plague is over, he says, it will be his turn. Time for change. Things never change, Despair says. Oh, but they do. That's my province, after all. Despair says that some things are changeless. People never really change. They just fulfill their destinies. We fulfill our function as they fulfill theirs. That will not change. You think not? Ah, I, well, perhaps you are right, after all. We will see. Ah me, I have much to do, scant time to stand here gabbling. Fare ye well, my little sister, till next I see your pretty face. His beard was rough against her skin. No one ever kissed Despair, save her brother. But when she next saw him, it was in Destiny's Hall, 30 years on, for the last time. Yeah, and there's this really, really good panel of Destruction, who is this big jolly man with a, you know, big red beard and flowing red hair, kissing despair on the cheek, and she's, you know, a miserable-looking, pale white creature, and she just looks sort of uncomfortable. Right, so they didn't really talk about this when they had their scene together, but Delirium and Despair both kind of think of Destruction as the only one who's nice to them, and he's really the most personable of the Endless, despite his job. Right. Yeah, I liked his line about how there is change, and that's his province. Right. That's important. So, by the way, this sets the year that he left the Endless as 1695. Hey, that's right. What do you think Aqualab is probably up to? (laughs) (laughs) Back in her gallery, Despair calls on Desire. She knows that the delirium won't stop once she really gets an idea in her head, and Despair begs Desire to talk, to, to do something about it, to help stop her. But she hears only silence. She'll go after him. I know she will. And what if she involves our elders in her madness? Despair? I'm in my gallery. I'm holding your sigil. I know you're there. Talk to me. We have to stop her. Please. Sister? Talk to me. And that brings us to the end of issue one of Brief Lives. I don't have a lot to say about this issue except to simply say that We have usually had some kind of human POV character before, or at least we did for Doll's House and Game of You. I guess we didn't for the first story arc. That's right. And it doesn't look like we're getting one this time either. Yeah, this is one of the arcs that leans more toward the Endless themselves as point of view characters. And we also didn't see Dream in this issue. All Endless action and no Dream. Yeah, I think that is right. So, in some ways, Delirium is kind of going to be our point of view for the rest of the story arc, and in the next issue, we're going to get Delirium's view on Dream, which is interesting. Right. Sandman number 42. It always rains on the unloved. That's a pretty good pick. On the cover, Brief Lives is spelled out, partially by various objects, including a fish hook. Yeah, they're written kind of over each other the letters of brief and lives. There's a compass, the circle drawing kind. There's a couple suns, one of which is a donut. There's a Morpheus face in the bottom right and a list of potential titles in the top right. At some point looking at all of this, I realized the titles and the covers are from Delirium's point of view. They are fractured stream of consciousness flitting from moment to moment. She's not able to hold on to a subject. I think that's a good observation. As before, this issue is written by Neil Gaiman, with art by Thompson, inks by Locke, and colors by Vazo. Yeah, it's actually the same credits, all three. So, we open on six panels of Dream walking through his dream palace. He leans on an archway morosely. She, she has decided she no longer loves me. So they broke up, without us ever meeting the girlfriend. That is right. He steps out onto this balcony and stares into the distance, and it rains down heavily on him. Yeah, it was sunny outside before, when we saw it from while he was inside, I think. But now it's started raining, as he commanded it to. Lucian appears and tells Morpheus that the young lady has left the castle. And the uh, palace staff were wondering, Lord, what would you like done with the suite of rooms you created for her? Erase them. Morpheus goes on to ask that the staff not mention her in his presence. And Lucian walks back into the palace, rain dripping off his face. The next four pages have at the top Morpheus still standing in the rain, as action goes on below in the other panels. Lucian tells Nuala that they are expected not to mention the girl's name anymore. And Nuala says that she got a gift from the girl and wonders if it's all right for her to hold on to it. Lucian says it is, as long as she doesn't let Dream see it. Now, Merv Pumpkinhead has a great speech here on Dream and what kind of person he is, and on his broken heart. Nah, he enjoys it. I mean, hell, it's a pose, you know. He spends a couple of months hanging out with a new broad, then one day the magic's worn off, and he goes back to work, and she takes a hike. Now, guys like me, ordinary Joes, we just shrug our shoulders, say, hey, that's life. Flick it if you can't take a joke. Not him. Oh, no. He's got to be the tragic figure standing out in the rain, mourning the loss of his beloved. So down comes the rain, right on cue. In the meantime, everybody gets dreams full of existential angst, and wakes up feeling like hell. And we all get wet. That's one of my favorite speeches in the series, and I think it really does sum up something important about Morpheus, because he really is a drama queen. Still, Nuala's looking through the rain-covered window and does feel sorry for Morpheus. And then we move on to a funny moment where Merv complains about having to dismantle the rooms in the palace when Morpheus could just will them away. Well, he's on the balcony outside, his coat was moving. Why don't you go up there now and suggest it to him? Okay, I'll go gather the wrecking crew. See you, toots. Later, Loosh. He really did like her, didn't he? Yes, my dear. I'm very much afraid that he did. So, still standing in the rain, Matthew announces that it's been a week and wonders how long this will last. After the not-off says Lucian, now in a rain slicker, he raised the dreaming. It was a bleak, lonely desert for centuries. Calliope, on the other hand, he took rather well. And Eleonora, he dove into his work after her. I think this is the first time that we find out that Eleonora is an ex of Morpheus's, isn't it? I think so. Now, I'm not sure here, but Eleonora may be intended as the same character as Alianora, who we met at the end of A Game of You. Oh, yeah, I didn't realize that they were spelled slightly differently. I just assumed they were the same person. Right. Now we get a very kind of Winnie the uh, (laughs) Pooh-ish... I love this bit. Of Abel in the House of Mystery. Um, He is piling furniture and other household things on top of themselves so that he can make himself a little perch to wait out the flood. Right, the House of Secrets is ankle deep in water now. And of course, the whole clumsy structure collapses and he plunks into the drink. He's talking to Goldie, by the way, as he's doing this, who is sitting on a high shelf and is just fine. Yeah, and he says that he's prepared enough sandwiches for another two weeks, and as he splashes into the drink, the sandwiches go flying. Yeah, it's a really cute page. It almost seems a little bit out of place. Well, it's nice to have a little break from Morpheus's moping, even though we know that it's still going on. Yeah, it's something that children's literature does very well, as a matter of fact. This kind of mixture of comedy with melancholy. Mm, mm -hmm. You know, I called it very Winnie the Pooh-ish, but it's a good tone to be able to strike, and Winnie the Pooh always struck it very well. (laughs) (laughs) And it's neat to see, too, both the way that the dreaming is empathic to Morpheus's desires, and the fact that people still have to live there. (laughs) Why do I hurt so? I scarcely knew her. A handful of months, little more I would have given her worlds of her own, strung like sapphires and emeralds on a silken cord. I would have given her... I keep thinking of her eyes toward the end. Cold eyes, weighing me dispassionately, finding me wanting. And in the end, she told me. But I knew before she told me. It was there in her eyes. She had decided she no longer loved me. So the next two pages are kind of cool. We get... The top half of the first page and the bottom half of the second page are, like, entirely devoted to one image. And it's an exterior image. And then we get the panels on the other halves of those pages where the action takes place. Okay, speaking of action, something is finally happening here. Griffin speaks to Morpheus. They've captured an intruder who claims to be his sister. And we see his feet standing in the rainwater just vanish as he teleports to the gate. He arrives to find Wyvern has delirium in its mouth. Whee! She says. Be fed fi wolf for fifter. I'm afraid she is my sister, Wyvern. Put her down. Gently. <laughs> he's like, he's not quite doing a facepalm here, but he is pinching the bridge of his nose. I think that that is a variety of face palm, <laughs> And I don't think it's the last one we're going to see here. <laughs> my lady, I must... Had I but known, I thought... It's okay. I mean, I liked it. It was like Disneyland. I especially liked the swinging bit. And she kisses Wyvern, and his eyes turn into cartoon swirls. Yeah, he gets hypno-eyes when she kisses him, which is cute. It's the cutest. Delirium, what are you doing here? I came to see you. I mean, I wanted to talk too. Not just see. Why didn't you call me? You have a gallery. If I called and you said no, then that would mean you wouldn't talk to me, and the last time I called, you said no in the time before that, so I thought you probably didn't want to talk to me, so I thought if I just turned up, then please don't make me go away. So this tells us something. The last couple of times she's tried to phone Morpheus, he has refused, and I wonder if that's because those last two times were in the past couple of weeks, and it was, you know, while he was in the middle of his wallowing. (laughs) Yeah, had some very important brooding to do. Or maybe they were, you know, centuries ago. Or maybe they were while he was locked up in, uh, Witchcross. Yeah, well, I think her presence here obviously follows from her actions in the last couple of issues as she's preparing to search out destruction. Right. Uh, yeah, but we don't know when those last times that she tried to contact him through the gallery and it didn't work were. Anyway, he asks if she's hungry and offers her some food. Right, and he's making something of a ritual out of dinner here. Asks her to put off telling why she came until they're served. There's a funny little man that appears with a turban and mustache and fangs who takes their orders. This is Teramis. That's right. Have you got any little milk chocolate people, Delirium says? About three inches high. Men and women. I'd like some of them filled with raspberry cream. Very good, ma'am. And to drink? Fresh mango juice, please. An omelet. A light salad and a glass of white wine for me, Taramis. As you will, sir. Be our <laughs> guest! Be our <laughs> guests. Put our <laughs> service to the test! This is somewhat less hospitable than Lumiere could have managed, I think. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure, for sure. In Dream's case, the master of the house showing up is less hospitable than most people's servants. <laughs> <laughs> So, they have a conversation here that's pretty awkward. She knows he's in a bad mood from the rain. I saw it was raining outside. Water. Or whatever it rains in dreams, anyway. As opposed to vitreous humor. That's right. a callback to the previous issue. The chocolate people are served up here by a topless woman with an eye patch. This is so silly. Not the topless woman with the eye patch, but the, the chocolate people. Yeah! So, okay. She holds up two of her chocolate people, making them kiss. Look, these two are making love. K-I-S-S-I-N-G. Stop that. I wonder if he's annoyed because it's like a symbol of romance that she's making out of her chocolate people, or if it's just that she's playing with her food and she ought to be eating it. Yeah, well, he seems to have very little patience for her silliness, which is kind of harsh considering that it's her nature to be, you know. Right, she's the very concept of silliness. Or really a more serious branch of silliness. I mean, she's definitely comedic in this sequence, but... Yeah, but there's also some, like, not to use a D word, but some desperation in her inability to to focus on things. Right. To find things when she's looking for them. Oh, I like here that she says they weren't really kissing, they were squidging. And anyway, she goes on to say that she finds both mango juice and kissing yucky. He pinches the bridge of his nose again. Is this formal family business, sister? She says yes, so they repair to the gallery. Now, as they leave, the two chocolate people are alive. Perhaps as a result of Delirium's touch. Perhaps as a result of her saying that they were doing something. Yeah, or maybe they were just cooked that way. (laughs) That's right. She didn't ask for, you know, inanimate people. She asked for people. They leave that place almost imperceptibly. Touched by her fingers, the two surviving chocolate people copulate desperately, losing themselves in a melting frenzy of lust, spending the last of their brief, borrowed lives in a spasm of raspberry cream and fear. The best we can do, I suppose. Title drop. Yeah, no kidding. This is obviously an important moment as the Endless are sort of deliberately contrasted with some very short-lived and artificial creatures. I find it interesting that he describes their presence as almost imperceptible, But the chocolate people were given life by Delirium's touch. The Endless are imperceptible, but their influence is massive, even without their intending it. Look how much taller he is than Delirium. Same panel. Yeah, grave height differences. We also saw that with Destruction and Despair. Right. In the gallery, she's having trouble spitting it out. He conjures a hanky to give her to dry her eyes with. Right, well, he tells her she's trying his patience, and she begins to cry. And wipe your nose. There's a lovely sound effect here, a dripping green sound effect that says snork as she blows her nose. I was afraid you'd probably be all horrible to me, and you're so scary, so I thought I'd really try to be good, and I was trying so hard to be good, and you were still being horrid to me, and I was doing my best, and then I messed it all up, and now you'll say no and be horrible, and it's all a mess, and it's my fault. I, I'm sorry. I've been a little distracted recently. I wasn't angry with you, sister. If I have behaved badly as your host, then please accept my apologies. Are you making fun of me, are you? Why would I do that? All that apologizing. You've never apologized to me. You just act like you know stuff I don't know, and that makes everything you do okay. I see. Well, I have apologized, and I was not making fun of you. So finally, he asks her what she's doing here. And we can read from his face here that he's not just trying to be gracious. He's actually in a little better mood here. Yeah, he looks slightly amused. So she mentions that they should go find their brother, and she also mentions that she was in Desire's house when she had the idea. I'm sure you were. So before he answers, he calls up Desire. Now, they haven't seen each other since the family reunion back in Sandman number 21, when Desire kind of sort of put him on the path of going to hell to rescue Nada. Yeah, which led to him inheriting hell because Lucifer quit, and I think, what was it, in the end he got strong-armed by God into giving it to the angels? Yeah, return the land of hell to its creator. Yeah, so he, he gets in touch with Desire, and what happens here is, well, it just becomes very obvious that Desire wants Dream to say no, but isn't trying to seem like it does. Right, Dream accuses Desire of having set this whole mission up. Desire denies both that and having anything to do with his recent failed romance. I hate to disappoint you, Dream, but you managed to screw that one up all on your own, although I did find it extremely amusing. So, Dream's not taking no for an answer, and he makes Desire swear by its heart, as well as some other things, the first circle. Right. Before he'll believe that Desire didn't put this in motion. Somewhere in this conversation, we find out that it's been two years Yeah, it's been since Sandman 21, and we find out that in the comic book time, that was two years ago. Anyway, Desire tells Dream to buzz off, and he does. And while he's out of the room, Delirium has been having a flashback. The moment she realized what was happening, that the universe was changing, that she was growing up, or at least growing older, she was no longer delight, and the blossoms had already begun to fall in her domain, becoming smudged in formless colors, and she had no one to talk to. She goes to see Destruction, on Earth, where he has to spend most of his time. And he said, "Dell, it's okay. And then he shut up, and then she started giggling uncontrollably. And he didn't say anything. He just held her until she gained control, once more. They watched the sunset for a bit. Then he said, "Dell, things are changing. She knew it was true, and there was nothing she could do about it. So that's our glimpse at how Delight became Delirium. And I just want to call out lovely art on this page wonderful contrast between Delight and Delirium. Yeah, Delirium is, you know, kind of dressed like a hobo in her big ripped up gray coat and pants. Delight is in a pink dress with a white corset, free-flowing blonde hair, and Destruction is kind of dressed like a medieval barbarian or clan chief. Yeah, we get this panel of the sun barely obscured by Delirium's face, casting it partially into shadow, and there's just a wonderful warm feeling to her memories of her brother. Dream comes back from the gallery and starts quizzing Delirium on her plan. Incidentally, she's now surrounded by mushrooms that she's created on the floor, as well as the Eiffel Tower. Right. And an umbrella. One of those mushrooms is not a mushroom, it's an umbrella. Now, Delirium admits that she was actually lying when she first spoke to Dream. She really does like mango juice. I suppose I'd start by finding his old friends and asking them if they knew. I mean, I'd ask them really nicely. Did you know any of his friends? A few. I made a list of his friends I knew. I wrote it myself. In writing. I'm impressed. He's not saying that he's going, and he asks what she'll do now if he doesn't go our older sister. I'll ask her, and if she says no, I'll ask Destiny, and if he says no, I'll go and look on my own. I can do it on my own if I want to. Right, but she says she gets distracted, and she gets lost easily, and she needs someone to go on this mission with her to help her focus. Morpheus calls up Lucian and says that he's going journeying with his sister. You've got pointy ears. Indeed. They'll need to call on a fellow named Pheromond for transportation. Delirium is delighted to learn that he's coming with. Lucian calls Morpheus aside for a private word. Do you really feel this is a wise course of action? My brother had his reasons for leaving, Lucian. He desires his privacy, and I respect his wishes. We will not find him. Then why? Because I need something to take my mind off my recent misadventure, perhaps. Because it has been a long time since I walked abroad. And because I wish to. Delirium will lose interest, he says, or he will, and then he'll come home. I see no reason to worry. You worry too much, Lucian. I've noticed this before. After all, this is completely straightforward. What could possibly go wrong? And what could possibly go wrong was another one of the title options for this issue. How does the god of stories not know not to say what could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good point. So, we have a a conspicuous absence of the girlfriend character who Morpheus just broke up with. Mm -hmm. And it kind of reminded me of the conspicuous absence I felt of a human POV character in the previous issue. So, I just kind of felt like maybe there was a linkage there. Maybe because of the way that Rose Walker was both something of a romantic interest and something of a POV character in uh, A Doll's House. Right, so the potentially human perspective of the girlfriend is neglected in this issue. Right, it's intentionally left out. Man, I just want to point out that this issue had one of the all-time weird scenes. Like, even in context, it's weird, but think about it out of context. Two people are having dinner, one of them is having chocolate people, they come alive when she touches them, and when she leaves them on the plate, they fuck desperately for their last few seconds of life. This is some weird shit. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Weird for the sake of weird. (laughs) But it's fun weird, and I I guess, you know, she doesn't order a salad, because she's delirium. Okay, so that brings us to Sandman number 43, The Dogs of Art. Fair enough. The cover is sort of a green book cover with various windows. There's an eye, some waves, sort of a creepy doll, a wing, a bear claw, and of course titles spread across the cover. Yeah, a lot of these look like cave paintings, don't you think? Yeah, that's a good call. So we open on a kind of omniscient narrator talking about people who are very old. The world is full of neighbors, some of whom are very old. There are today less than a thousand who walked the streets of Atlantis, the first Atlantis. The other lands that bore that name were shadows. Echo Atlantis' myth lands and they came later. I wonder if that is specifically to make this canonical with Aquaman. Oh, that's a good point because there is an Atlantis currently, right? Although you can't walk it because it's underwater. Yeah, Aquaman probably can. There Aqualad lad less... probably can. <laughs> That's what he's up to. Yeah, there you go. There are less than 500 living humans who remember the human civilizations that predated the great lizards. There were a few fossil records are unreliable, several of them lasted for millions of years. There are roughly 70 people walking the Earth, human to all appearances, and in a few cases to all medical tests currently available, who were alive before the Earth had begun to congeal from gas and dust. Walk the streets of any city and stare carefully at the people who pass you and wonder and know this. They are there too. the old ones. So that's a fascinating bit of world building. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was really cool. And that sets up what Dream and Delirium are going to be doing for the next few issues, which is to say they're looking for Destruction's old friends, but Destruction hasn't been seen in 300 years, so they have to ask some very old folks. Yeah, and one of those very old folks is Bernie Kpax. He has, for most of his life, been some kind of lawyer. People always need lawyers. He knew the real Marquis de Sade, and he knew Sigmund Freud, too. He's on the bus, and he's thinking about a dream that he had of mammoths, because he hasn't smelled mammoth in thousands of years. I really like his stream of consciousness rambling here on this couple of pages. Bits of conversation with friends, some of whom happen to be long-dead famous people slipping into personal musings. Yeah, he's walking by a building, and it looks like all of a sudden the building or part of it collapses, and a big piece of stonework just falls out of the sky on him. He can hear himself screaming as the wall comes down, and he's surprised when he hears what the words are. Not yet. On the next page, we find Bernie standing in the rubble, amazed that he survived. I did it again. I did it a frickin' again. I'm not even hurt. Well, that's one way of putting it, but your body is under there. It's death. Now, Bernie asks if he had a good long time. 15,000 years. That's pretty good, isn't it? I lived a pretty long time. You lived what anybody gets, Bernie. You got a lifetime. No more, no less. You got a lifetime. That is one of the iconic death lines. As she says this, we zoom in on the ankh on her chest and then a panel of black. Next, we find Dream and Delirium walking up a riverside in Dublin. Delirium asks for the word for the precise moment you forget what it felt like to make love to someone you really liked a long time ago. There isn't one, Dream says. <laughs> this is a fun bit of wordplay. They walk into Feral Travel, and they say they'd like to see Mr. Feral. Well, actually, he says he wants to see Faramond, and he's corrected to Mr. Feral. And the receptionist says, can I have a name? And Delirium says, you don't have one? That's sad. <laughs> I also like that when the receptionist first addresses him, Dream says, who rules here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty good. Oh, oh boy. He cuts right through the bullshit. So the receptionist figures out that the pheromone they're talking about is feral, but she won't let them in without an appointment. Seems kind of like she rules here. Uh, (laughs) I'm sorry, is this person with you? I'm not a person. She called me a person. Did you hear? Even though she's pretty sure pheromone's not in the office, Marie, the receptionist, calls in. Morpheus gives her the full-on dream stare and says, "Marie, I wish to see your employer. I have no intention of leaving, nor indeed of waiting any longer. Call back and have the following message given to him. Tell him that we drank wine in Babylon together." Deliria meanwhile is lying on the couch here reading a National Geographic upside down, and she wonders if there's a word for forgetting the names of both the people you were going to introduce to each other at the same moment. So, Mr. Farrell's having a bad day. It seems like he arranges all transportation, from airplanes to traffic to horse-drawn buggies. Yeah, he's having a bit of a hectic day. There's a pretty gross story about a prostitute that's sprinkled in here somewhere. I thought that was a little gratuitous. The narration has, A young female prostitute choked to death on human semen. Her body was thrown into the street by an aide to the Minister of Culture. That, I find kind of (laughs) (laughs) sexist. And it's not clear why this is a problem for Ferramond, although perhaps it's because a couple of chauffeurs who worked for him are rounded up by the police. Yeah, it's like a... I think we're supposed to get the impression that it's like a butterfly effect kind of thing. Mm, okay. This thing that the story is telling us is inconsequential led to two of his chauffeurs being arrested, which, you know, led to another thing, which led to another thing, which ends up with, you know, his whole day gummed up with trying to get all the world's transportation back online. Of course, the thing that the story is telling us is inconsequential is the end of a human life. (laughs) Yeah. But I guess Bernie Capex didn't have it much better. Yeah, I think the first many times I read this, I assumed that Faramond was at the orgy, which is not really necessary to the story. I think I thought that for about two seconds, yeah, that Faramond had been at the orgy. But, no. Anyway... So Eileen, who is the person that the receptionist was talking to on those phone calls we overheard, comes in and says, Um, well, he says he drank with you in some pub. (laughs) (laughs) After much ado, Marie gets on the phone to to Farrell and tells him about Babylon and that the lady in the office is making little frogs. Right, I think that's one of the titles, right? Bored, she makes little frogs is one of the titles for the issue. Pharamond comes down possibly instantaneously. It's unclear how much time this panel break represents. Lord Morpheus, this is indeed a pleasure. Pharamond. good day. May I present my sister, Lady Delirium? Indeed, I am honored. My house is honored to have two of your illustrious family here beneath my roof. Words truly fail me. I thought he was being a little sardonic when he said words truly fail me. Because Delirium is sitting on the floor causing multicolored frogs to jump all over the office. (laughs) So they head into a conference room where Dream asks for transportation. No problem. You'll be staying on Earth then? Nothing off planet or off plane? This Earth. Well, that keeps everything straightforward, doesn't it? Might I ask the purpose of your journey? No. Ah. There's some wordplay here between Dream and Delirium. Where should we start? Here? Very good. We are here. Where should we travel to now? Somewhere that's not here? That was the idea, yes. I think we should go and see the people on my list. I wrote it myself. She's got a list of Destruction's old friends, and she realizes that she's left it in her realm, so she teleports away to get it, which Faramond takes pretty well. And while she's away, Morpheus and Faramond are making small talk. Yeah, we find out that he's the last of his pantheon, and he owes Morpheus his life. Diversification, that's the secret. You were right about that. Morpheus, it seems, convinced him to be less of a god of transportation and more of a transportation person who moonlights as a god. (laughs) Right, there you go. Delirium reappears with the list. She mentions that she knew it would be in the last place she looked for it, so she looked there first. Clever. I wonder if this is how all the people who are very old came to be very old, which is that like Faramond, they were gods at one time. There's a bit of American gods going on here. <laughs> That's a good point. Irish gods. Irish gods? Well, they're in Dublin. I we mean, should... he's not a part of the Irish, you know, Celtic pantheon, but Faramond is an Irish god in the sense that he's a god who lives in Ireland. Yeah, lives in Dublin. We should make this podcast more Irish. I love Dublin. Well, listen, when Cassidy is, <laughs> <laughs> when Cassidy's in the house, we make it as Irish as we can. Oh, you just meant that you want whiskey. That's what I meant. I have scotch. Delirium has the list here, and we see the names on it. The lawyer, the alderman, a of the second look. She's drawn a little flower over the eye of that one. And the dancing woman. The dancing woman. Wow. Oh, I have peach schnapps, too. I'd rather not have the peach schnapps. It's almost full. I don't care for peaches. Sean, everybody refuses the peach schnapps, and this is the result. You want me to drink the peach schnapps? <laughs> yes. Give me a little glass of the peach schnapps. Not a big one. This is one of Neil Gaiman's real talents, is just coming up with lists of evocative phrases that suggest there's more to them. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, but speaking of Attain of the Second Look, we find her waking up, and this is yet another waking up scene. Yeah, she had a dream of a poem. It was a house that was also a poem, and she reflects on Samuel Taylor Coleridge and the famous backstory of his poem Kubla Khan. Right, she remembers the poem from her dream being really excellent, but she can't remember it to write it down. She doesn't know why Sam Coleridge bitched so much about his man from Porlock. He got 55 killer lines down on paper before he got distracted, didn't he? Now, Attain is apparently one of the old ones, an old friend or ex-girlfriend of destruction, but to us she appears to be a pretty regular lady, a pretty redhead in a Modern but unimpressive house or apartment. Yeah. Wearing modern and not at all unimpressive undergarments. (laughs) (laughs) Before she realizes what she's doing, she spills her coffee, sprints to the window, grabs her purse to shield her face, and jumps out. Certainly she smelled gas, but by the time she smelled the gas, she was already running through the bedroom toward the fire escape. She uh, cuts herself up pretty good, drops from the fire escape onto the garbage and then she takes off running and she manages to get away just in time as the building goes boom behind her. Yeah she is sliced alone thrown through the air here. Someone is killing all the people on Delirium's list. Yeah or destroying them kind of specifically right? Oh. Like both killed by blown up buildings or collapsing buildings right? That's a little hint there. Sean's giving me a little hint. I do want to point out here that we opened on Attain Waking. She specifically mentions the transition from sleep to wakefulness as she's drinking her coffee. We then see her crash through a window. Transitions, changes, wrought by destruction. Hmm. So she goes into a Kmart, clothes first, then shoes, then out. She also is quite aware that this was very likely not an accident. So she's made up her mind to go on the run. And now we meet a character that we have not seen yet. A new perspective on this story. There's a large red-headed man humming to himself as he paints an olive tree. He asks someone what they think of the painting. And then the someone, Barnabas, a large husky, says it's terrible. Well, the perspective's shot to hell. The colors could be better chosen. And the olive tree on the left looks like an overgrown stinging nettle. What the hell would you know? You're a dog. Did I ever say I wasn't? He gathers up his stuff and heads inside. There's a funny banter here about dogs being colorblind. Yeah, and about their other qualities. You know, Barnabas, there are those who claim that for unquestioning respect and eternal devotion, all one needs is a dog. Hey, schmuck, devotion you've got. Perjury isn't in the job description. Now, Barnabas hears something in that room round the back, and as they investigate, Barnabas asks what this room is. I tend to think of it as the family room. It's Destruction's friggin' gallery. Right. Six sigils on the wall. One of the sigils is apparently a sword. I don't know whose sigil that would be. Actually, he has seven sigils, so I guess seven is the correct number. They do have one of their own sigils in their gallery. Oh, and the sword must be him. Right, which we haven't seen before because nobody else has his sigil anymore. Right, okay. And in the center of this room, there's a pool of water, and it's just kind of sloshing of its own accord. I suppose you could call it an early warning system. I don't like it. What's it warning you against? Trouble. Big trouble. Now for more hilarious fish-out-of-water comedy, Delirium and Dream are on a plane. Oh, that's (laughs) (laughs) vile. All right. All right, I guess I better have some. More? (laughs) One more little one. All right. It's too sweet. Very sweet. I don't like peaches in general. I think I like peach flavored things, but not peaches themselves. Well, They're all rather squishy fruit. Yeah. Yeah, the flavor's not bad. It's just too sweet. Hmm. <sighs> okay. It's Morpheus's first ever plane ride. Not deliriums, incidentally. He must mean his first plane ride in reality. I'm sure plenty of people dream about plane rides. That's a good point. Yeah. He used to do that cool traveling by dream thing. We don't really see that anymore. And he doesn't seem to have to do it. It's just cool. Right. Where he hops onto a bus where some people are having sex in the back. I guess he has to do it if he doesn't want to call Pheromond. Yeah, maybe. Delirium talks about how she likes looking out at the clouds and thinking about going walking on them. Maybe it's a special place where everything's okay. But she's actually tried it and it's just cold and wet and empty. Right, but she still likes looking at it from a plane. It's still a special beautiful world when you see it from the plane. It's cloud illusions that she recalls. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) She asks about Faramond, and Dream says that when they met in Babylon, Faramond's sacrifices were dwindling, his shrines abandoned. I merely suggested that he find himself another occupation. Oh, I didn't know you could stop being a god. You can stop being anything. This is obviously relevant to the current storyline, Destruction having walked away from his duties as one of the Endless. He has stopped being an Endless. Right. As well, Dream has often been challenged to change with the times, as he suggested Faramond do, and his obvious discomfort with the mortal world and modern modes of doing things in this story arc suggests he has not adapted well. Okay, so nearby, there's a little kid who has just woken up from a bad dream. Right. In the dream, she was lost, and she was scared she'd be lost forever. You're a silly mouse, says her mother. You can't get lost in a dream. You always wake up. But when mom goes to the bathroom, Morpheus leans over and says, Your mother was wrong. You can indeed become lost in dreams. And you may not always find yourself when you wake up. Meanwhile, the mom is asking the stewardess who the couple in first class are. Rock stars or something? There's something very familiar about both of them. She relates an anecdote about being at a party and recognizing a man and carrying on a whole conversation with him before she realized that she recognized him from the fact that he was Charlton Heston. She didn't <laughs> know him at all. Yes, she mentioned she was doing a lot of coke at this time. Umberto Eco wrote a story about this, how to react to familiar faces. I think a lot of people read it in school. Hmm. I haven't read that one. I jumped in the deep end with Umberto Eco. (laughs) 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 I tried to read uh, The Name of the Rose. No luck? Have you ever seen it? (laughs) (laughs) No, I can't say that. It's it's just super long and super dense. It's not an easy read. Is that the murder mystery in the convent? Not a convent, it's It's an an abbey. It's an abbey, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's the same story. He sees a man that he recognizes, thinks, I better go say hi to that old friend, but I'm going to be embarrassed that I don't remember who it is, and realizes right before he does that it's Anthony Quinn. Oh, okay. Oh, I saw somebody in a 7-Eleven the other day, and I decided not to say hello because I couldn't decide if it was someone that I used to work with or if it was just, like, a waitress who's waited on me before. Mm -hmm. at some local restaurant. Yeah, so they're having a very familiar experience, and we get the impression that if you were to see one of the Endless, you'd know them even though you'd never met them. Right, the Endless are famous. Anyway, Mom gets back to the seat and asks, Did that man say something to you? What did he say? True things. Now, the little girl, Chloe, asks Morpheus why, when she dreams, she can remember how to fly. You just lift one leg and then the other. But can't remember it when she wakes up. Can she really remember how to fly in the dream, or is she just dreaming that she can? When you dream, sometimes you remember. When you wake, you always forget. Getting off the plane now, Morpheus and Delirium are greeted by Farrell's agent. Her name is Ruby, and she gets them out of the airport without passing through customs or immigration. You know what that costs around here? It's quite a voice you've decided to give her. I apologize to all humans. <laughs> <laughs> So, she says they wanted a classic car, so she puts them up in... Is that... Is that an old Bentley? Wow, somebody knows what it is. You know what? It probably is a Bentley, because that's what Crowley drove <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a car that Neil Gaiman has a fondness for. I thought you hadn't read that book. No, I read it, like, last week. Oh, okay. You hadn't read it when I read it. Right. Gotcha. Oh, there's something about change, change here. They talk, they well, it's, about it's really important to mention that... Delirium desperately wants to drive the car. Fuck no. (laughs) That's what Dream said, too. Ruby looks at their list. First up is Bernie K-Pax, so they head out. Um, what's the name of the word for things not being the same always? You know, I'm sure there is one, isn't there? You know, there must be a word for it. The thing that lets you know that time is happening. Is there a word? Change. Oh, I was afraid of that. She's been afraid of changes. <laughs> yeah, so... So, yeah. in that issue, we finally met some humans in this story. But were they really humans, or were they all former gods? I think Ruby is a human. Well, yeah, okay. yes, yeah, Some of them are clearly humans. What was the question? Well, like, Faramond is a former god. Is Bernie Capex a former god? Is Etienne a former god? I don't know. I think it's it's an interesting idea to think that maybe they all have a past of somehow being divine, and that's why they still exist. I also can imagine that just in this world that Neil Gaiman is showing to us, people sometimes just live 15,000 years for no reason. You're just born a human, and then you don't die. That is a cool idea. That is a cool idea. And that's sort of what happened to Hop Gadling in yes. Men of Good Fortune. Death just agreed not to touch him as kind of a bet, and he's... What is it, 500 years old now? Yeah, right. So we've got Gadling. There's Koshi the Deathless, obviously. Yeah, obviously. But he died 200 years ago. Oh, fair point. Apep the Serpent. <laughs> Who's he? That was in the Death of Element Girl issue. She mentioned that Ra had been fighting an endless war with Apep the Serpent who never dies, but Apep had died 200 years ago. Oh, I see. He sounds like a god. Or something. Oh. He is a god. Oh, no, something weird. But yeah, Hob had mentioned way back in number 13 that morpheus doesn't really need him to see what happens when a person lives forever morpheus has seen that right morpheus has met the old ones before i think it's probably worth mentioning too that destruction seems to have several friends which picking up friends is not a problem that morpheus has seemed to have over the years yeah that's an interesting point i guess he doesn't have to worry about anybody deciding to murderize all of them how many issues is this story arc nine nine it doesn't seem like we got very far well, that's a good point. That's one thing you can say about the story arc is that it's definitely taking its time. Yeah, and I mean, I guess I guess we felt the same way about the first three issues of Season of Mists. is that it, They took some time to get going. Mm-hmm. Did you have a most Morpheus moment? <laughs> I didn't know that I was going to prepare one, but I think, Is this formal family business? <laughs> Mine is from the same scene. Delirium says she misses their brother or whatever, and Morpheus is like, so? And she, like, totally calls him out. She's like, that's what Despair said, too. (laughs) So I think getting called out and saying, so? When someone's trying to spur him to action is a very Morpheus moment. Yeah, he had another... Why would I do that? Again in this story, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take action. (laughs) What is this you speak of? What do you think this is? A comic book all about me? (laughs) Mercifully, not all about him all the time. Yeah, lots of Endless in this one. We've met Destruction already, even though we're looking for him. This might be his first appearance in a regular issue, maybe? I think you're probably right. We saw him before in Song of Orpheus, which was an annual. Right, when he had attended Orpheus's wedding 3,000 years ago. And helped Orpheus get into hell. Yeah, which may not have turned out to be the best decision for Orpheus. No. And Orpheus is going to figure into this somewhere, right? That's right. He has to, because we already saw him. He is, I guess, a human who just never died. That's right. He's immortal in the same way that Hob is. Death just agreed not to touch him. Right. As much as she might want to. Death showed up, too. We got Death for a little minute. She's not really connected to what Dream and Delirium are doing yet, but we did see her. Yeah, I think more than any other story arc, this is like the Endless as a set of main characters, and they're all part of a story together. Okay, so if there were a TV show about the Endless, and at the beginning of the TV show every week they had like an old-fashioned credit sequence, where everybody, like, had, like, their face and their actor credit, you know? Like, what song would you use as the opening title music? (laughs) I feel like Neil Gaiman has probably answered this question, but... uh, (laughs) I think, you know, who wants to live forever is a little obvious (laughs) at this point. Yeah, right. Do you want to hear mine? Yes, I absolutely do. Time After Time by Cyndi Lauper. Okay, okay. That would probably work on me. Weak point for massive damage. (laughs) All right. Bit of a cliche, but uh, I'm that kind of a sap. (laughs) All right. Well, in four weeks, you can join us once again for Have You Got Anything with a Happy Ending? in our next Sandman episode. But first, join us next week as John Constantine relates the tale, The Dead Boy's Heart. Vertiguise is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show. I handle social media. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertiguys.blueberry.com. Tell them how to spell blueberry. B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. But only in this context. Yeah, don't be spelling blueberry like that, like for a muffin or whatever. Man, if somebody sold a blueberry vodka with that spelling, it would be the thing that annoyed me the most. It's a good thing that that's an imaginary thing that you don't have to be annoyed about. (laughs) He's annoyed. He's annoyed at this thing that he just made up. Hey, if you have questions for us, you can send them on over to vertiguise at gmail.com. Also, make sure you let us know your picks for Vertigize Phase 2 after we wrap up Sandman and Preacher and the Garth Ennis run on Hellblazer. Also, don't hesitate to drop us a line on Twitter at vertiguise, and you can reach me at blankcastshawn. If the technological interface that you are using to listen to our show has a mechanism for you to leave ratings or reviews, please leave positive ones. We keep track of the ones that get left on the Apple Podcasts app, and we give shout-outs to people who give positive reviews there. But yeah, so that's a little bonus incentive, and you can spread the word about Vertiguys. But as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. So you say you want to stay together Either way. I don't believe you're cause me and That needs to be like the hook to a rap song right there. Like fighting Like lay down a beat. <laughs> like no, like lay down a beat. Iron Reaver Soul Stealer. <laughs> and just like with a beat, like, you know. <laughs> Iron Reaver Soul Stealer. <laughs> there you I can't I can't I don't have any rhythm. <laughs> Iron Reaver Soul Stealer. What Del the Funky Homo sapiens said was not true is true. Some what? people do not have it. <laughs> that's a bummer. That's a, real, that's a shame. <laughs> because we would have had the hottest track if we had been able to do it. Yeah. Yeah, like you can't do either part. <laughs> like you can't do the <laughs> And you also can't do the Harry results soul Stealer part. Yeah. <laughs>